Prepare for Pain. This is the 131st Goblet of Pus, and it's called Five Out of Four Americans Do Not Understand Statistics. Ed, doctors say he has a 50-50 chance of living. Frank, well, there's only a 10% chance of that. Naked Gun. There are several motivations for choosing a topic about which to podcast. One is to pontificate to others about a topic about which I am expert. Another motivation is amusement. Some posts I write solely for the glee I experience in deconstructing a particular piece of nonsense. Another motivation, the one behind this podcast, is a feeble attempt to educate me. I hope that the process of doing this podcast will help me to better understand a topic with which I have always had difficulties. Statistics. I took and promptly dropped statistics four times in college. Once they got past the bell-shaped curve of flipping the coin, I just could not wrap my head around the concepts presented. I was a physics major. Math held no fears for me. Statistics does. I think the odds are against me, but I am going to attempt, and likely fail, in discussing some aspects of statistics that I want to understand better. Or, as is more likely, learn it for the umpteenth time, only to be forgotten or confused in the future. Frequentist. In medicine, it is the p-value less than or equal to 0.05 that rules. If the results of a study meet that requirement, then it is statistically significant. Maybe not clinically relevant, maybe not even true. But you have to have pretty good reasons not to bow before the power of P less than or equal to 0.05. It is significant, damn it. But what does that mean? First, you have to consider the null hypothesis. Ugh, now my brain's starting to ache. That two events are totally unrelated. That there is no difference between, say, two treatments in terms of their effect. The p-value is the likelihood that any observed difference away from the null hypothesis is due to chance, or, quote, the probability of the observed result plus more extreme results if the null hypothesis were true, end of quote. So, if there is a small p-value, 0.05, then the chance that the difference observed in two treatments is random is 5%. If the p-value is less than or equal to 0.05, then the result is significant, and the null hypothesis may be rejected, and the alternative hypothesis, that there is a difference in the treatments, might be accepted. That cutoff of significance, 0.05, it should be emphasized, is an arbitrary boundary that was established by Fisher in 1925 but since has become dogma set in rebar reinforced cement. What is significant, at least as it was initially formulated, quote, personally, the writer, Fisher, prefers to set a low standard of significance at 5% point. A scientific fact should be regarded as experimentally established only if a properly designed experiment rarely fails to give this level of significance. In other words, the operational meaning of a p-value less than 0.05 was merely that one should repeat the experiment. If subsequent studies also yield significant p-values, 
one could conclude that the observed effects are unlikely to be the result of chance alone. So significance is merely that, worthy of attention in the form of meriting further explanation, not proof in and of itself. End of quote. The p-value has numerous problems as a method for determining whether the null hypothesis can be rejected. And it makes my head hurt right there when you say whether the null hypothesis can be rejected. It seems so removed from reality, although I know it's not. There are at least 12 misconceptions with the p-value, all of which are common and all of which I would have said once upon a time. One. If P is equal to 0.05, the null hypothesis has only a 5% chance of being true. Two, a non-significant difference means there is no difference between groups. Three, a statistically significant finding is clinically important. Four, studies of p-values of opposite sides of 0.05 are conflicting. Five, studies with the same p-value provide the same evidence against the null hypothesis. 6. P equals 0 0.05 means that we have observed data that would occur only 5% of the time under the null hypothesis. 7. P equals 0 0.05 and P less than 0 0.05 mean the same thing. 8. P values are properly written as inequalities. 9. P equals 0 0.05 means that if you reject the null hypothesis, the probability of a type 1 error is only 5%. What's a type 1 error, you ask? Type 1 error occurs when one rejects the null hypothesis when it is true. This is why statistics makes you head hurt, because the jargon they use, and I understand its importance, you have to reinterpret it into real language. 10. When a P equals 0.05, threshold for significance, the chance of a type 1 error will be 5%. 11. You should use a one-sided p-value when you don't care about a result in one direction or a difference in that direction is impossible. And 12, a scientific conclusion or treatment policy should be based on whether or not the p-value is significant. End of quote. My head is now starting to pound. It appears from reading writers, there, I say that three times really fast, it appears from reading writers wiser than I that the p-value is a piss-poor criterion to judge biomedical results. I wonder if anybody got that intentional pun. P-value, piss-poor. Probably not. Above all, what the p-value does not include is a measure of the quality of the study. If there is garbage in, there will be garbage out. I would wager the most popular way to find a significant p-value is subgroup analysis, and the Zygra study is perhaps the most expensive example of that bad habit. They found that a subgroup analysis, a post-hoc analysis of the study, found benefit of Zygra's in patients with sepsis who had a high Apache score. So it got approved for that, and we spent a billion dollars in Zygra's. And then a repeat study showed that that was nonsense, and we no longer use Zygris. So that p-value was significant, it was wrong, and it cost the country a billion dollars or so. And just this week I was reading an article on high-dose ulcitamivir for the treatment of influenza, and quote, 
Sub-analysis of influenza B patient shows faster RNA decline, P equals 0.05, and clearance with higher dose treatment. And I have no end of colleagues who will see that meaningless p-value and perhaps up the dose of olsatamivir and up the chance of complications and up the cost. Same as it ever was. To my mind, most p of 0.05 is probably going to be random noise and probably going to be clinically irrelevant because clinical trials have too much bias and too much confounding variables to believe a 0.05 p-value. Quote, The most important foundational issue to appreciate is that there is no number generated by standard methods that tells us the probability that a given conclusion is right or wrong. The determinants of the truth of a knowledge claim lie in a combination of evidence both within and without a given experiment, including the plausibility and evidential support of the proposed underlying mechanism. If that mechanism is unlikely, as with homeopathy or intercessory prayer, a low p-value is not going to make a treatment based on that mechanism plausible. It is a very rare single experiment that establishes proof. That recognition alone prevents many of the worst uses and abuses of the p-value. A second principle is that the size of an effect matters and that the entire confidence interval should be considered as an experiment's result, more so than the p-value or even the effect estimate, end of quote. So, what's a science-based medical practitioner to do? How am I supposed to interpret the medical literature? Bayes. If comprehending a p-value gives me a headache, Bayes gives me a migraine. Bayes is evidently a superior conceptual framework for determining whether or not a result is, quote, true, unquote, and has none of the flaws of the p-value. But Bayes also lacks the simplicity of a number, and I prefer a simple number, especially given the volume of papers that I have to read. The p-value is a shortcut, but unfortunately, it's not a reliable shortcut. If you Google Bayes' theorem, you always get that formula an expression of the concept that is both concise and, and for a practicing clinician who is brain-dead when it comes to statistics, imminently forgettable and impossible to imply without help. I have a Bayes calculator on my iPhone, and I reread Dr. Atwood's blog entries on the topic over and over, and it is still difficult to comprehend and apply. Well, at least for me. As a clinician... As someone who takes care of sick people for a living and not a scientist, how do I apply Bayes? Simplistically, how valid, how true a result might be depends in part upon prior plausibility. In a world of false positives and false negatives, it is not always so simple to determine if a positive test makes a diagnosis likely or a treatment effective. Many of the Bayes explanation sites use cancer screening as an example and I cannot retain that example any longer than while I read it. The problem with Bayes, although superior to p-values, is that of pretest plausibility. Often it seems that people are pulling pretest plausibility out of thin air. In the old days, we used to do VQ scans to diagnose pulmonary emboli, PE. Not a great test, and there were always the issue of how to interpret the result based on whether you thought by risk factors that the patient was likely to have had a pulmonary embolism. I always felt vaguely binary during these discussions. I mean, 
Either they had a PE or they didn't. The pre-test probability shouldn't matter, but it does. And that is my problem. I have found the RX Bayes program on IOS gives a nice visual understanding for Bayes. Even a highly sensitive and specific test is worthless if the pretest probability is low. I deal with this most often with Lyme testing. There is virtually no Lyme in Oregon, so a positive test is much more likely to be a false positive than represent the real deal. It is striking in playing with the program how high the pretest probability has to be for even a sensitive or specific test to have good reliability. And most of the tests I order have only a middling sensitivity and specificity. Synthesis. The p-value is so much nicer since it gives a single number rather than a range of probabilities. It was interesting to see what happens when you apply Bayes to p-values, to a frequentist approach. As I understand it as a clinician, the take-home of applying Bayes to p-values is that a p-value of 0.05 or even 0.01 may be statistically significant, i.e. worthy of further investigation, it is unlikely to mean that the result is true, that you can reject the null hypothesis. In part, this is due to the unfortunate fact that many clinical studies stink on ice. Recently, an article in PNAS, way over my head, discussed how Bayes, by way of the base factor and the p-value, can be related. The base factor is a method by which subjective prior probability is removed. Quote, the base factor is a comparison as how well two hypotheses predict the data. The hypothesis that predicts the observed data better is the one that is said to have more evidence supporting it. End of quote. So how do the two values compare? A P of 0.05 corresponds to a base factor of 3 to 5, which is considered weak evidence. The take-home as best I can tell from this study, is that a P of 0.05 is probably a better value for significant and 0.01 for highly significant if you want to reject the null hypothesis in biologic studies. Not quite the five sigma criteria that CERN used to find the Higgs boson, but better and more likely to be true, true meaning the null hypothesis is unlikely. Again, that's the problem I have as a clinician. I don't reject null hypotheses. I try and figure out what the best and most likely therapy is for my patient. Wallowing in the medical literature these last 30 years, I have been struck by how many studies wobble about the zero point. Some studies show benefits, some do not, of a given intervention, all with slightly different designs and all with middling p-values. My big take-home from the above is to consider an intervention effective as true if the P is 0.005 and has been replicated. But a P of 0.05 in a single badly done study? Ignore it. I think the above analysis probably excludes a big chunk of real medicine and certainly all the topics covered by the quack cast. I wonder, and someone can find one for me, is there a scam intervention that has a P of 0.005 or e much less 0.001? Not that I can find, but I am sure someone will correct me about this 
and the numerous other areas I have made in this podcast. I think I have a simple rule of thumb with a sophisticated background now. And as Barbie noted, math is hard. And that ends the 131st QuackCast. This is being recorded on the 21st of December, 2013. So I'd like to wish all my listeners a generic non-denominational seasonal greeting to thank you all for listening to the QuackCast. And don't forget to go online and write glowing reviews of this podcast on iTunes. And of course, my growing multimedia empire with links to my books and my apps and my blogs and my podcasts can all be found at edgydoc.com. Thank you guys. Later.